This is the Garden Cinema Film Talk, presented by Michael Chambers and Abla Kandelaft. We chat with filmmakers, actors, producers and film commentators about the art of film. We talk about the films they made, how they made them and the ones they'd like to make. This week, we talk to journalist Darren Richman about some of his favourite genres and filmmakers. We talk about the film noir and Mike Lee films he's seen here at the Garden Cinema. We also discuss and debate the nature of comedy, from Faulty Towers to the Coen Brothers, and the way Hollywood depicts love and compassion. Thank you very much for joining us, Darren. We're looking forward to this discussion. Thank you for uh, having me. Absolute pleasure. You've been, you're a member of the cinema. And you've been to see a few of the Mike Lee films or just one so far? Just High Hopes? Uh, so I've been to see High Hopes and I've got tickets for three more. Um, but I've seen plenty of other things here since I discovered it a few weeks ago. I've kind of constantly been coming after work. What, what's been a highlight? Uh, well, the first thing I saw here was Witness for the Prosecution, the Billy Wilder film. Um, so to come and see that for a fiver uh, in the middle of the day was a complete joy. I haven't watched it for years. Is that the film with, with um, uh, Marlene Dietrich it as a part? Is indeed. And yeah, it's funny because part of the twist, spoiler alert, yeah. sort of um, it kind of hinges on the fact that Dietrich is in a disguise yeah, and playing yeah. a kind of Cockney character. Yeah, yeah. And I... I don't think Billy Wilder pretty much made a single mistake throughout his career, but I find the casting in that film quite strange when she's meant to be in disguise and you're not supposed to know it's her, but she has one of the most famous speech impediments of all time. <laughs> so she's supposed to be a cockney and it's very obviously Marlena Dietrich. Well, but uh, yeah, suspension of disbelief, it's fine. It's okay. I... Yeah. And generally speaking, you're interested in film and noir. As yeah, a genre. I think noir. So I, I was, I, I went last night to see the man who wasn't there, which is the Coen Brothers' kind of tribute to the golden age of noir. Every time I've been on a bit of a kick, especially through the season that you guys have been doing of, of watching a lot of these old ones, and I think the interesting thing about noir as a genre is that. Oftentimes when people think about old films or old black and white films, cinema from the past, there is this idea of it as being a bit like homework and a bit stuffy and boring and difficult. And I think if you watch noir films, they're incredibly entertaining. They're, they're so plot heavy that they're almost impossible not to enjoy if you enjoy something like Gone Girl. If you enjoy any thriller, you'll probably get something out of a noir film. But there's also this kind of German expressionism thing that's brought in where they're, they're much more nourishing than watching a kind of, you know, pot boiler today because they're being made by these great artists and they're taking, you know, German expressionism and pulp novels and bringing it together to make this thing that is... I think about as purely enjoyable as cinema has ever been. And also, I mean, this is just a kind of sort of a personal thing, but you know, my grandfather um, is an Auschwitz survivor. And a lot of those guys who made those films are, you know, refugees from Eastern Europe who have come to Hollywood, have lost lots of their family in the Holocaust. Billy Wilder is one of those people. And so this kind of bleakness of tone that pervades the films, if you watch Double Indemnity, like, it's incredibly grim, it's bleak. I think you've put your finger on it in a way that I think virtually all film noir is intelligent. 
whereas thrillers, action films, it can be chases and endless chases and cliffhangers and all the rest. But a film noir has to be intelligent. Yeah, and I think the way that they play with the kind of where your sympathies lie. You know, in the last 10, 15 years, we've had The Sopranos and Mad Men and Breaking Bad, and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, us kind of rooting for the sort of nominal baddies. But if you watch Double Indemnity, there is a moment where they are waiting for the car to start to get away to see if they're going to get away with this murder, essentially. And every single person in the cinema is waiting with bated breath, hoping that they do it. And it's genius. You're completely rooting for it. And they've put you in that position. I, I mean, I came here... So you've had this British noir strand. So I've come to a few of those and I came to see Brighton Rock and I'd read the book but never seen the film. And, you know, obviously you have the the girl who, um, you know, the deceased was on a date with spends the remainder of the film basically trying to find out what happened. And she's got loads of agency. She's essentially, you know, plays the detective role. She's not called a detective because she isn't a detective. And like the contrast that they make between her and Pinky, the the Richard Attenborough role, is extraordinary because Attenborough's character is incredibly repressed. He's clearly terrified of sex and he's frightened and, uh, you know, he's got this big sort of... uh, Catholicism weighs heavily on his mind and what's the afterlife going to be for him and that character that's obviously you know a combination of Rattigan's script and Graham Greene's original source novel is she absolutely loves life and she's a bit of a shagger she's you know likes to drink and she's one of the lads essentially you would say and she's really happy with her lot and ultimately she's the heroine of the piece she works out what happened and she manages to save the day and stop you know the you know the the young woman from from meeting her doom at the hands of Pinky at the end of the film um but yeah I, I thought that film was remarkable in that in fact that and Night in the City which I came to see here I feel like they stand alongside any of the Hollywood ones um as genuinely sort of masterful noirs but also the the British aspect is brilliant you know seeing London and Brighton at those times is fantastic I think. And you um you talked about just going back to what you previously said the uh the background of the the filmmakers that made American film noir a lot of them from Eastern Europe a lot of them had either survived the Holocaust or had uh, you know family uh, that had perished or survived. I, I found that that very interesting, actually. That um, suffering and bleakness was was sort of channeled in um, a fictional murder mystery type plot instead of something much more realistic. You know, America wasn't ready. The world probably wasn't ready for. I mean, I know from conversations with my grandfather. When he came over in the well, he came over just after the war. But he would tell me that in the forties and fifties. You couldn't tell people what had happened because they didn't believe you. So I'm sure that those guys, once they came to Hollywood and they were working, there would have been something that attracted them to this material. And if you've kind of lost everything at that time, you've got to put it in an exciting murder mystery. And it seems no coincidence to me that Fritz Lang, Otto Preminger, Billy Wilder, all of them were making film noir. And I I read once an interview with... um, I think it's it's William Golding, isn't it, who wrote Lord of the Flies. And he was saying that what he wanted to do with the book, and it was not that long after the Second World War, was to say that, you know, these are a bunch of British public schoolboys. 
They crash land on this island and they turn into savages. And his idea was to say, in Britain, the idea at the time that had taken root was that this was a particularly German thing. There was something innate in the German character that meant that the Nazis had happened and we'd ended up with Auschwitz. And he said that under the right circumstances, anyone would behave that way. And it was quite controversial. People didn't like him saying that. But I think Noir does that as well. It says under the right circumstances or wrong circumstances, anyone will behave very, very badly. But yeah, I I think there is just something that is timeless about the idea. You know, we get it now when Succession, obviously the TV show, everyone loves the big show of the last few years. There are constant think pieces about there's no one to root for. All of the characters are horrible. But I feel like that's the case as far back as you want to go. Like, watch any of those noir films. Who are you meant to root for? Picking up on that, mm. and the fact that you mentioned you'd seen a few Mike Lee films and you're a big fan of the director's work, I feel like Mike Lee uses that bleakness of the world or injustice, whatever you want to call it, to highlight the goodness of human that humans are capable of. I think that's really well put. Yeah, I, I so I, I adore Mike Lee and I think that, you know, coming here and seeing him speak after the films as well, I would say he is someone who, despite what the kind of surface level might be on the films, he clearly is something of an optimist about human nature. I mean, I know you went as well to see High Hopes, which I came here to see. And that is a film about... a a really loving, beautiful couple living through a very, very difficult time and the way in which they're trying to make the best of it. And I think, yeah, he... he, The funny thing about him is, I think in the popular imagination, he's a guy who makes bleak films about abortions and stuff. But actually, his films always have loads of heart. You know, the ones that I like best, um, I would say... Topsy Turvy, Vera Drake and Secrets and Lies are three of my favourite films of all time. They are absolutely full of heart. He, he is trying to say that, you know, it, there are all these external factors that make life very, very difficult. Life is hard. Mike Lee is very aware of that. He might have called his film Life is Sweet, but he thinks life is hard. But actually, the way that we interact with each other and the way that, you know, human beings can be on a one-on-one level is in a way maybe more important than who's in government. You know, we can get through these things. Michael, what do you make of that? Is that something you see in his films? I do. I think he um, he's very optimistic, basically, and he um, he likes to capture the true humanity in the the films he's making, as as I think the best filmmakers do. Uh, we mentioned Renoir. There's an example. He was the same. And uh, Ken Loach is another, he does the same. The thing is, it's, it's very easy to be pessimistic. And people think it's great. If you're pessimistic, they feel this is serious, great art. If you're optimistic, people say, oh, well, this is soap opera. But I think this is just a false uh, modern approach, perhaps postmodernist sort of view of life, that there's no meaning to it and whatnot. But um, I personally, I like, a, I like drama that's true. And to me, truth is everything. I think if you're a pessimist, and maybe Darren's a pessimist, he feels it confirms his worldview. And <laughs> that's, 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 that's OK. Well, I, I that does no it, harm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, mean, I could not agree more, incidentally, with the idea of that art should be about truth. And I think that's why 
there are a lot of imitators of Mike Lee, but I think they take the wrong things. They they take the idea that that it's that the world is just awful and terrible and hard. But what Mike Lee says is, our human interactions make it worthwhile. The way you treat other people is the thing, and that will get you through it. I there is I don't think there is a single Mike Lee film other than possibly Naked, which we were talking about earlier, where you come out of it and feel like, oh, the world is just terrible. It's so tough. Like most of them, they are... You, you When we came to the end of High Hopes, I think everyone in this very screening room felt like, yeah, there, there's hope. Like it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances. Vera Drake, which I'm going to come and see on Saturday, you know, there's hope. That's a very sad story. But actually what she was doing was an amazing thing and he's shining a light on something that is a really significant thing and yeah I, I probably am a more pessimistic person than Mike Lee <laughs> um, but I do think that he's right and that's why his films move me so much because actually in a sort of harsh unforgiving world human kindnesses are what we have really. I mean high hopes there are moments of pure hilarity where you know people love let's turn it's interesting to turn to humor and comedy as a change there's something that always puts me right off a film i mean you might disagree with this that'd be interesting to hear they call it a comedy and then the blurb goes on to say uh, an example of the best dark humor and I think, oh my God, dark humour. I mean, really, I see that as a contradiction in terms, dark humour. I can see you can have dark wit. I can see you can have dark irony. But I don't really feel you can have dark humour. And when they say dark humour, I think, oh my God, they don't know what this film is. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. So, um, obviously, we mentioned the Coen brothers who are my favourite contemporary filmmakers. And I think they have had that description uh, levelled at them many times in their career. And I actually went to see The Man Who Wasn't There last night, which is their sort of, you know, noir film, the, the sort of modern noir film. And I think that is a, a darkly comic film. But what does that mean, darkly comic? <laughs> I, can't, I, suppose, I can't see that. I suppose it's, it's you know, it's not airplane, is it? Um, <laughs> it's... I guess it's a, a film where it's dealing with the series of events that occur within The Man Who Wasn't There are very upsetting. They, they follow the traditional sort no, of That I can part. see. But yeah. if you think of the great comedians, whether it's Chaplin in the old days or something like uh, uh, the Dame Edna Everidge today <laughs> or uh, the Marx Brothers or Faulty Towers or, or The Office or... Or any great humorous... Naming all uh, of my favourites. Yeah. I can't see it's in any way dark. OK, I, so here's I where I would say... I, I can think of an example from what you've just named. Yeah. So Chaplin, probably his most iconic sequence in The Gold Rush, where he... Eating his boots. He's eating his boots like spaghetti. Yeah, that's right. And, be, and because of the, 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 the sort of beauty of his performance, the guy he's sitting with gets jealous because he eats it like it's the greatest spaghetti he's ever eaten in his life. And that, for me, is darkly comic. Like, their circumstances are so bleak, but he is able to do it in such a way that his friend basically gets jealous of him eating shoelaces. That is quite darkly comic. And Forty Towers is full of darkly comic moments. Hitting like, the car. 
the impotent rage of this guy that he is smacking his car. No, comedy has people falling. Laurel and Hardy, they're always falling downstairs. It's both. Their slapstick humour is always like that, but it's done as comedy. It's not dark. I think it's both. It's Greek tragedy. I I find Chaplin hard to watch, genuinely, because it makes me feel sad. I see the circumstances more than the humour. My mum could not watch 40 Towers. The kids, there's tragedy there. There's tragedy and comedy, but it doesn't mean the comedy's tragic. I think a lot of times when people are using the term dark comedy, they are saying it is funny, but it is in uncomfortable areas. So you mentioned 40 Towers. My mum cannot watch 40 Towers because she finds it too upsetting. So if you watch, the one she always cites is the, the anniversary party because Basil pretends he's forgotten the anniversary, for his own ridiculous reasons to surprise her and she storms out and then Polly has to pretend. Now that is quite a bleak situation. Like Sybil genuinely thinks he's forgotten and he hasn't and he's sort of rolled up in a ball as he often is in the show. Do people keep forgetting your mum's birthday? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think my dad's pretty good on that. But yeah, yeah. Something's happened there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's ultimately, that programme is... Like it is there in the psychiatrist's episode, you have literally named one of my favorite things ever. But in the psychiatrist's episode, at the end of the episode, the psychiatrist walks past Basil. He's rolled up in the fetus position and he says there's enough material there for an entire conference. And the idea is like we are essentially over 12 half an hour episodes of farce seeing a man essentially have a nervous breakdown like Basil Forty has serious issues yes, lying but, in a separate no, bed I agree from with his you. wife I agree with you comedy has its tragic moments but it doesn't usually provoke a laugh the laugh comes with the lighter comedy. You can't imagine people laughing over Basil Fawlty in this fetal position. People don't laugh at that stage. That's the tragedy. Yeah. And if you mix tragedy and comedy, people you rarely hear them laughing at the tragedy, uh, but they will laugh at the comedy because comedy is funny and it's not dark. It's funny. And, and, and the slapstick where... Um, Keaton or the or the the, the um, Laurel and Hardy, you know, carrying a piano up the stairs and it rolls backwards and almost kills them and so on. That's funny because it's slapstick and you know it's not real, and therefore it can be funny. Mm. Uh, it's the, the the that sort of slapstick humour. You know he's not going to break his arm. He's not going to die. He's not going to fall under a bus and be run over and dead. It's it's all slapstick, and you know he's he's made of rubber. He'll bounce up again. Yes. And so therefore it's funny, um, and that's one of the beauties of film. Of course, you can watch people being shot, and you know it's not real, and so that makes it much more tolerable. I think I guess you know, in terms of. Billy Wilder, I think it shows something when you talk about comedy and tragedy that this guy was as good at doing either. It's why I would say he's probably the greatest writer-director of all time because a guy who can make The Apartment and Some Like It Hot, which is routinely described as the funniest film ever made, and also make Double Indemnity and Ace in the Hole and Sunset Boulevard, you know, it's remarkable and it shows that those two things are not that far apart from each other, writing a comedy and writing a tragedy. And often they overlap. There are funny bits in Double Indemnity and there are quite scary bits in Some Like It Hot. It opens with a St. Valentine's Day massacre. 
dark comedy. <laughs> well, going back to the Cohen brothers. Uh, yeah, I think uh, they are kind of, of their appeal. I guess. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I think they are very much natural successors to Wilder in that they will turn their hand to anything. So, you know, Raising Arizona and Burn After Reading and The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Those are big kind of broad sort of comedy films full of jokes. But then they have also done No Country for Old Men and Blood Simple and Millard's Crossing, which are much more serious kind of, you know, and Fargo, they've won Oscars. Actually, Fargo... Oh, no, I think of it as a comedy. Yeah, I was going to say, (laughs) Fargo is actually a film that is... They're masters of both sort of paying homage to a genre and also pastiching it. Um, Michael, was there anything you wanted to bring up or...? I was just thinking about what Darren was saying about uh, the Cohen brothers and uh, those making films in Hollywood now compared to the old days. The thought occurred to me that um, the old generation, older generation of Hollywood directors, um, going right back to the beginning, you know, the 20s, they'd seen life. They'd seen life in all its shades. They'd seen life, uh, the First World War. They'd seen the Depression. They'd seen the drama of the Second World War, the Cold War. They'd seen life in the raw in many ways, politically and socially. Um, What had they experienced, these people? The Cohen brothers and the people who make films today, the Americans, I'm not talking about the Europeans, and I'm not talking about the South Americans or the Asian filmmakers. Those who grew up in England and America and probably Western Europe generally, Germany, France, who are now in their sort of 40s, 30s, what have they seen of the world? What have they seen of real life? How can they create art? that reflects the truth about life. How can the Americans, growing up in bloody Los Angeles, as they often do, in a world of celebrity culture, of um, outright consumerism, of, um, like Tarantino, really growing, he didn't, I don't know if he went to university, but he certainly, he, his formative years was working in a bloody de, uh, a rental shop for films. I mean, living up as if, as living, a, growing up in a world where film is more real to him than the real world. And the films that are real to him, what are they? Hollywood, Hollywood films. I mean, what does this man know about anything? Nothing. Nothing. So he makes a film like Glorious Bastards and he has no idea what it was really like. He can't, he can't portray the, f- he can't portray the, through, f- the truth if, if he even wants to. If he's, even if he's desperate to be true, he doesn't know it. He doesn't know truth. He's never lived through it. He's never seen it. And he's grown up in, in, in California, god damn it, the most unreal co- county in the whole of America, where everyone is false. They're all inventing themselves there. And so nobody knows the truth. They marry someone they don't really know who they're marrying, so they divorce them and marry somebody else who they don't really know either. It's a fake world. And these people, they grow up in that world. How can they make true films? They can make horror films. They can make thriller-chasing films, you know, trains going over the, over the cliff and down the bridge. All these horror films 
planes crashing. That's easy because you do, it's not truth and it's dramatic. Drama's built into a, a, a crash, a, a crash. Drama's b- built into a shooting. Tarantino opens his, what probably his strongest film, the early one, where they all shoot each other and uh, opens this film with a bang, bang, bang. They kill each other, and the audience is already primed for further killing, so the tension's built in from, from the first minute. It's easy. It's cheap filmmaking. But that's because they have to do this because they don't know the drama of real truth, and so their films will never reach that level. And I feel the same with the Coen brothers. They're highly gifted in everything you say about them. Technically, they're brilliant. They know how to do a script. They know how to shoot the film. They know how to edit it. Everything they know, they've got, you know, they, they, they understand it. And modern Americans, they understand filmmaking. Filmmaking is their world. Film is their world. They understand how to do it. So they make brilliant films, but they never get the truth. Well, and they so can they... never draw on personal experience that will give them an understanding that informs the, the film, as you say Billy Wilder can do. Because Billy Wilder, he knew the world. Yeah. He knew it. And therefore, the great films that are true come from these people and from current filmmakers from America, from, from South America, from Chile, from all these countries. They know it. They can do it. And you get brilliant films from these people. But from Hollywood, you get falsity. So I think, yeah, a little bit like... Sorry for carrying on like <laughs> that. <laughs> I, I think a little bit no, like, like, you know, it's as with Tarantino, up. I think what's interesting is, you know, it's all to do with the times you live in. Yes, they have grown up. They were born in the 1950s in Minnesota, small town Minnesota. And so what they are playing with is films. That is the thing they know. They have seen thousands more films than Billy Wilder ever saw in his lifetime. So that is why I think the best way to go about making films, if that is your upbringing, it isn't through having lived anything like Billy Wilder did, is to play about with genre, play about, you know, they are doing everything they can to mess about with the idea of what film is and all these old films. And they and that, do that very well. And they do, and they do that extremely but well. But film yeah. about film. But I think there is there is. <laughs> Where's their of, real life experience, I guess? I think... Growing up in Minnesota. There are relationships, there are families, there is work, there are things they've done, you know, I feel like there is a lot of truth in their work. They are often accused of a coldness, which is interesting. I think it's just another way of basically saying what you say, because they are not very earnest. They are seemingly taking the mickey quite a lot of the time. Even The Man Who Wasn't There, which I think is a masterpiece, some people see it as a very cold film. They, they, they have been known in A Serious Man as well, and The Man Who Wasn't There, and in Fargo. A lot of the time they will throw a lot of sort of unfortunate events at their characters. They will say, here's a character, and we're going to make it very grim for them. Well, there's a profound cynicism. There is a cynicism. That underlies postmodernism. Yeah. And it's part of the same generation. They're cynical. There is no truth. And uh, you play around with history. You play around with film. Um, Everything's a joke because they've never had the experience to give them a sense of what is really true. But if the, the the interesting thing is if you take the films of theirs that are the most popular, so I would say that The Big Lebowski and Fargo are the two films that most people, if you ask them to name a Coen Brothers film, they would name. They are films with human relationships at their heart that are probably their warmest films. At the end of The Big Lebowski, the dude and Walter have a hug. They are very different people, but they love each other. In Fargo... Yeah, I'd agree about Fargo with the, the relationship the between relationship, the two main characters felt I real. I really feel that is quite like a Mike Lee film. 
Norm and Marge are a couple like in High Hopes that love each other. They're going through a lot. She's pregnant, which is a really nice touch in the film. We never find out anything about what happens, but they're muddling through in the midst of all this madness. They are just a couple. He gets up. A lot of people have said that Norm is like relationship goals. He's the husband to be. He gets up early, makes her breakfast, drives her in. Um, yeah, which obviously they do have experience of. They, they, they know what it's like to be in relationships and have children. But that is interesting that that's the, the only moment of realness mm. that I can pinpoint. I've never thought about it. You're right. Everything else is kind of super, slightly superficial, a bit slightly of caricature. They can, yeah. But the, I've noticed with American films now these days, they can't deal with true emotions. Love, they can't deal with. Not real love. They can deal with the sort of sentimental Hollywood-style love. Um, sentimentality is ingrained in them now because, because the truth escapes them. With European films, with South American films, with films from China or Japan, when they're talking about love between people within a family, it's real. It's real. You can see it. You can see it in the actor. You can see. But with American films, it's either lovey-dovey very happy, everyone's happy, love, 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 happy, happy, clappy, or suddenly it goes the other way and they shoot each other, they k kick each other out, whatever, they get nasty. And in, in American films like this, if you meet, if people are coming down the street towards you in, on the pavement, there's somebody coming towards you, in an American film, the sense is, oh, be careful, this person might do something to you. There's a hint of, of threat with these strangers coming towards you. In other countries, they make a film, somebody coming down, you're just as likely to think, oh, that's nice, somebody look, I'm, looks a nice fellow. Americans can't do that anymore. They can't do it. They don't have this faith in people anymore. People are, in, in a sense, almost inbuilt as a threat to them. And so if a stranger comes in the house, something's going to go wrong. Something They're going to do something. They're going to, I don't know, throw a bomb or shoot well, me or I'm something. I'm a pessimist, so I, I think that every time someone walks well, past me Well, there the you see, so you share it. You share this <laughs> same thing. So if you made a film or were an actor, it would suffer the same drawback. But in other countries, in you think of any, a Persian film, uh, sorry, Iranian film, or, you know, the, the, the people are... They can be quite warm to each other, There's genuine, not not fake warm, but genuinely warm and cooperative people. And the Americans find this very difficult to do. And when they try to do it, warmth and love, it comes across as sentimental. Well, I'm trying to think of a film that would contradict that. And genuinely, on, off the top of my head, I can't. But weirdly enough, the only example I can think Woody of Allen in America... Woody Allen do it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. But I think of TV but series... But he never goes to California. <laughs> anymore. Um, I'm thinking of television series, and I think it's because they are so drawn out. There is so much time to explore characters. And I'm thinking of two particular... I'm sorry, segueing, but two particular series recently, most specifically one of them. And you've pinpointed what I like so much about it. I think you're right. It's unique in its depiction of genuine feeling. feeling. Yeah. And it's um, Better Call Soul, if you've watched it. And I couldn't put my finger on it. It's a TV series, a spin-off of another TV. It's very slow. And it's the exploration of a man who genuinely tries to do good in his life and keeps failing. The, the relationship between him and his female colleague is at no point sentimental. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a story of genuine friendship and, and love. Oh, I must see this. Well, and equally, you see, the strength in American films is people being really nasty to each other. 
they can do that. They have no problem about conveying with absolute truth and a, a, a true reality about the acting. People rejecting each other, manipulating each other, doing people down. And it happens all the time in American films. But as soon as they try and switch to people being nice to each other, loving each other, being generous, it becomes sentimental because they can't do it. The, the, the only filmmakers I can think of who do come to mind um, are, I think that Mike Mills makes quite heartfelt films. He did 20th Century Women. He did Come On, Come On last year with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I think Noah Baumbach, I, I, like Francis Hart, Marriage Story, I think they have something to say about human relationships that is not... I agree, Noah Baumbach, he, he does he try. Yeah, and actually the other one who springs to mind, and she's only made two films, and I wonder if partly it's because she is a female filmmaker, so she is more interested in exploring these areas, is Greta Gerwig, who I would say Lady Bird and Little Women are very warm films without being kind of mawkish or sentimental. Well, a bit sentimental. Though, you think so? Yeah. Yeah, I Lady love Lady Bird. Birds. I won't hear any slander again. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> That's the thing. All, all I think that art should do, my personal feeling is it should reflect something of human experience. I like to see a film and say, I feel like that person knew something about what being a human is. Mike Lee, we were talking about Topsy Turvy earlier. Now, Topsy Turvy is a film about Gilbert and Sullivan, but really it's just a film about the creative process. It's about anyone who's ever decided they wanted to write a book, you know, make a play, whatever it is, that's what that film is about. And Mike Lee is, uh, you know, in an expert position to tell us what that feels like, making something from scratch, especially the way he makes his films, yeah. much as he doesn't want to talk about the way he makes his films. That is what he does. And I think, yeah, like the great filmmakers, that's what they say to me. I will watch a film by those people and say, yep, they know something about what it is to be a human being and they're now imparting it to us in an entertaining way. Well, that was... Uh, sorry for <laughs> ranting on like Wide-ranging. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Darren. Thank, thank you very you much, very Michael. Much. No, pleasure. Very interesting discussion. Well, I think thank you too. You've, yeah, you've joined in terrific. fully in this <laughs> yeah. discussion. Yeah. This was the Garden Cinema Film Talk. You can find out more about the cinema screenings and seasons on our website, thegardencinema.co.uk, and follow us, send us comments and feedback on our social media at the Garden Cinema. Thank you for listening.